Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing. In this show, I cut through the hype and hand-wringing to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. Literally every day, a marijuana-related pitch pops into my inbox, whether it's to profile a cannabis entrepreneur, to check out pot-infused bath bombs and facial creams, or to look at the launch of an organic CBD-infused sparkling water. That last one is a direct quote. And it's not just me. A Shark Tank episode featuring a doctor who had launched a CBD oil was the most watched episode in Shark Tank history. The craze is on. Investors, of course, love the eye-popping predictions for growth in the cannabis industry. Global spending on legal cannabis is projected to grow 230% to $31.3 billion in 2022, according to one market researcher. Pot is now legal for medical use in 33 states, but it's still illegal at the federal level. Strange. And hence, author Jackson Tilley's use of the delightful word legal-ish in his new book subtitle, Billion Dollar Dime Bag, an insider's account of America's legal-ish cannabis industry. A self-professed true believer, Jackson calls cannabis the next great American industry. Is he right? Well, there are some serious issues. From a financial point of view, the short history of cannabis stocks is, well, highs and lows. Sorry, I couldn't resist. The opportunities to make and lose fortunes, of course, sound like any new industry. But is pot just like any other new industry? There's a fierce debate about whether we'll regret the rush to legalization. There's still a lot about cannabis that we just don't know, including its harms and benefits. Proponents think we're going to learn good things. Detractors argue that THC, the active compound in cannabis, is strongly linked to psychosis, schizophrenia, and violence. 
So today I get to chat with Jackson Tilly, who, as I've mentioned, is a total believer. His first job out of college was at a cannabis company now called Organa Brands, and he never left. In addition to being an author, he's now the vice president of strategic partnerships and communications. As for me, I'm interested in learning why it is that Jackson believes so strongly in this industry. So I want to start in a slightly odd place. One of the fascinating things I learned from your book is this idea that to those of you in the industry, marijuana is actually a pejorative word. Tell us the history of how how it came to be. You might want to call it the war on drugs (laughs) 1.0 in the very first generation of cannabis being treated like something horrible. So you have Anslinger, who was trying to stoke fears about anti-immigrant sentiments in the United States. And this is back in the 1930s, right? When pot became illegal. Exactly. This was probably a year and a half after it was first beginning to carry with it a criminal punishment. So you have Anslinger, who's decided that the best way to do this is to attach cannabis use to anti-immigrant sentiments. And so marijuana, I guess at the time, people felt like had some connotation with Mexico, And so it sort of just took off from there. And it was spelled with the H then instead of the J that you see more commonly now. So it's funny to look back at it. It's sort of like transparent and kind of unbelievable that that was ever a thought that somebody had. But it worked at the time. And I mean, not dissimilar to what we're going through now. You know, we have a huge debate about immigration happening. And I think some of the worst parts of politics stoke those fears in people and try to uh, leverage that anger. It's toward. interesting. Everything old is new again. I was thinking that when I when I read it. But I, I thought this was also stunning from your book that, you, that a lot of us don't remember that cannabis was once actually legal. And you write that before 1937, you could walk into a pharmacy and purchase a vial of it was called marijuana tincture from mm-hmm. behind the counter and that it was prescribed as a remedy for a malady known as female hysteria. Yeah. So, Get get women stoned, don't let us vote, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, and I think like whether or not that was actually the impetus for any of that, who knows? But it's just wild to think about the sort of dramatic change back and forth. And again, it's not dissimilar to alcohol prohibition, legal before, made illegal, and then made legal once again. Do you have any sense of if the alcohol industry had something to do with marijuana becoming illegal back in the 1930s? You know, I haven't read anything to that effect. I wouldn't be totally surprised. But I think largely the big push for it was hemp production, that people did not want to see hemp as a commodity used in the production of paper pulp. And so that was like a huge driver for this sort of anti-cannabis sentiment. Oh, that's interesting. So they wanted the hemp to be used in paper, so they didn't want it being used elsewhere? Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so you begin your book with these quotes from three presidents, which I think is great. And I'm just going to read them because I think it sets the stage to talk about how much attitudes are changing now again. You've got Bill Clinton saying, I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and I didn't inhale, and I never tried again. And then you've got Barack Obama saying, when I was a kid, I inhaled frequently. That was the point. <laughs> so so talk about the changing attitudes toward cannabis. You know, I think it's a lot like any big social movement where the big piece that's always missing is just time. And I think you could liken it a little bit to gay marriage almost in the same sense that it was something that was forever enormously taboo. Yep. And it was not until... Things like social media and easier access to information at a broad scale that you saw the conversations start to tilt. So I think it's very similar with cannabis that people are just exposed to it to a greater extent now than they were previously. And I think 
the big piece is that you see more and more people who are both successful and consume cannabis. And for a long time, those things were mutually exclusive. Right. So you're breaking that historic association of the loser on his mother's couch. With, right. right. <laughs> and for as volatile as you mentioned, the stock market surrounding cannabis is, it's also the first time that it's being taken seriously as a real business. I, I mean, for its faults, it really is. I, and I want, I want to come back to that. But one other thing you write in your book that I knew but had forgotten is that John Boehner, the former House Speaker, right, is now serving on the board of a cannabis company. He is, you know, you can type in cannabis investments into Google and you'll be served an ad for America's big cash crop.com, what John Boehner has to say. (laughs) (laughs) That's just amazing. And as part of this, you note that the number of Americans supporting legalization is growing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's the same thing. I think it's twofold, really. People are frustrated with the prison industrial complex in the United States that huge numbers, particularly people of color, are either charged or jailed for cannabis or petty drug charges. And then I also think people are just interested in new forms of income and new additives to the American economic system. So hence the push toward legalization. So tell us about Colorado, because Colorado is obviously the first state to legalize pot entirely, not just for medical use, but for recreational use as well. What's the picture there? I think it's largely positive. Certainly, if you compare it to places where there's a black market that's still thriving, look anywhere in the South and see exactly what's happening in contrast to Colorado, where just like a typical day, if I were to walk off the plane in Colorado, I could head to a dispensary in Denver. If I'm over the age of 21, I'll walk in, they'll scan my driver's license, and I can buy something from behind the counter as if it were a liquor store. And in turn, the state has taken a huge portion of what you've just purchased as tax revenue, and a great deal of it has been earmarked toward public schools. So in Colorado, I hadn't lived there in a long time, and then I recently moved back. And it's sort of amazing to see the city is. Denver in particular. It's spotlessly clean. There's new buildings going up everywhere. And it's consistently ranked as like one of the best cities to live in the United States. And I think a lot of that is probably due, in fact, to this like move toward personal freedoms that people want to be in Colorado and have access. Interesting correlation. <laughs> I'm going to go with correlation rather than causation on that point, but I'll, but, but I'll, but I'll give you a possible correlation. Um, and you haven't seen the explosion of violence in Colorado that some of, of marijuana's detractors, and I'm sorry, I can't help it. I'm going to keep using the word marijuana. I just, I, bad word or not. <laughs> I say it too. It's totally fine. Okay. Okay. You haven't seen that explosion of violence that people expected, right? No, absolutely not. And As a matter of fact, violence has largely gone down in Colorado. There was like a brief spike three years ago, but still far below the national average and significantly below what the projected national average was when they did a study of future violence in the United States as a whole. So I think that that has largely been debunked. And I make this point in the book that the sky just has not fallen in Colorado. There are certainly issues as there are with any developing market, but these fears about Children having easy access to cannabis, the opposite has proven to be true. And as far as crime, I think probably the biggest crime that you see is robbery as it relates to the transportation of cash in Colorado. Because, because there's, there's no banking system that will, the banking system won't, won't take cannabis money, right? Exactly. So people are forced to use these private armed car services and bank at credit unions 
instead of just being able to conduct business like anybody so else. So it's crime as a result of messed up regulations rather than, yeah. And I think the point you made is, while an, an obvious one, it's one I often forget, which is that the black market will exist. We're not talking about pot or no pot, right? We're talking about legal pot or illegal pot, but it's going to be one or the other, which I think is, is an interesting point. So tell, tell us about your personal story, because you're an advocate for this industry, and yet you don't use it yourself. I don't. And I did at one point in my life, but I got sober in the midst of working in this industry, actually. And, you know, my my drug of choice was always prescription pills, like I think many people in the United States. And so for me, it was sort of an awakening about what's the root of this issue in the United States? Like, wh- why are prescription drugs so prevalent and so easy to get in cannabis, which carries far less of the same dangers, almost impossible in so much of the country. And so that's like in one bucket. And then the other piece is just, and I've, I hit on this all the time in the book, and I say it all the time in real life too, but it, for me, it's just a personal freedoms issue. It's like, I don't know that it's harming anyone. And in fact, probably has a net positive effect. So at the end of the day, if you're not hurting anybody, and we can make the rest of the world safer by making it legal, why wouldn't you advocate for that? We're going to come back to that, but I, but I want to pause on your point about prescription drugs because I thought that was a really interesting point that opioids, available legally, prescription drugs kill people and marijuana does does not. And that there is there is some hypocrisy around complaints about making pot legal when you compare it to what is legally available and dispensed crazily in the pharmaceutical system, right? Yeah. I mean, and for me, I was an 18-year-old fresh out of high school, dropped off at college and was getting a prescription for exorbitant amounts of Xanax from a doctor who just didn't think to question why an 18-year-old needs to be taking six or seven Xanax a day. And wow. and that case isn't unique to me. That's a widespread problem of overprescription in this country. So when it comes to cannabis, I just think it just doesn't carry the same risks. And I hate to say that because I know there are detractors who say that it certainly does carry risks. And I'm not saying it's risk-free, but I think if you look at the two in a vacuum, it's evident which one carries a, a higher risk. I hadn't actually realized that you couldn't kill yourself by overdosing on marijuana. Okay. I'm naive about this, in- this industry and marijuana itself, I have to confess. I think this. the study that they did said you'd need to eat 36 pounds of cannabis in order to be able to overdose. <laughs> and it wouldn't even be from the THC content. It would be from your stomach expanding too rapidly from all of the plant material. So it's a high bar. Okay. <laughs> that is a really disgusting image. <laughs> okay. So let's start with some of the basics just for people who are listening who may not. What's, what's the difference between CBD and THC? Sure. So at its most simple level, THC is the psychoactive part of the cannabis plant and CBD is the non-psychoactive. So CBD offers, according to some, a lot of the same benefits as THC, but without feeling high, essentially. And do you believe that these claims about CBD are pretty astonishing? This Shark Tank episode with this doctor that became this most watched episode in Shark Tank history said it's been clinically proven to help dozens of ailments, including, I just have to do the list, chronic pain, arthritis, stress, depression, anxiety, heart-healthy diabetes, improve cognition, and delay the onset of horrible conditions like dementia and also, I mean, seriously? You might be able to moonlight as a narrator for prescription commercials on television. That was very very quick. <laughs> you know, I don't know. And I think most people don't know whether it's actually true or not. And a huge piece of that is that there's no situation in which you could do a controlled clinical study on the effects of CBD because there's no regulatory body to oversee that. So that's one issue. Yep. And then beyond that, 
anecdotally, most people believe in this thing called the entourage effect, which is where you have to have multiple cannabinoids in order for them to all fire at full power, if you want to think of it that way. So CBD works in its most effective way if it's paired with some type of THC or other cannabinoids that are present in the plant, and there's hundreds of them. So taking like a straight up CBD seltzer water, for example, (laughs) I don't know that that necessarily does anything. However, there might be a placebo effect. And if that makes people feel great, then more then, power then to them. Why not? Right. <laughs> and, and, and it sounds good. So we are really, you mentioned that these hundreds of strains in the cannabis plant, we're really at the nascent stages of research about this, right? Because the research that was going on in the 20s and 30s into the medical benefits of cannabis just went kaput when it became illegal. Right. Exactly. And, and it's a huge issue. I mean, I think there's a lot that the plant can do more than we probably understand right now. And the only way that we're ever going to figure it out is if there's federal legalization, because until then, who can really say? No one is equipped to be running those types of studies. So where are we in understanding how useful marijuana can be in, in treating various diseases, not just CBD, but, but, but THC? Are we, you hear these reports of miracles of people's seizures being cured, of cancer patients being able to eat and tolerate their medication. Is this the first inning? Is it the ninth inning? Where are we in our understanding level? This is probably the third inning. Baseball is not my strong suit. It's like the first 20 minutes of the Academy Awards. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's a concept I'm familiar with. <laughs> We're waiting to see large-scale studies that happen. And I think, again, I hit on this all the time, but it's until there's federal legalization, it's tough. However, anecdotally, you can see it firsthand. There, there are tons and tons of people who move to places like Colorado and California who have chronic health issues that rely on cannabis. And I think at the end of the day, whether it's for pain or for seizures or for nausea, whatever, if people are finding relief through something that is largely free of many of the downsides of prescription pain medication or prescription alternatives, I would advocate for that a hundred times over. So in the interim, I think people should just continue to try products in a responsible manner and see what works for them. There's powerful anecdotal evidence. I will, I will give you that if no, if no systematic scientific study. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the money coming into the industry? I saw a statistic earlier this year, I think, that a company got $125 million of, of venture capital money. Are you seeing the amounts of money begin to skyrocket? On the whole, I think it's begun to level out a little bit. Okay. But in the last two years, yes, an exorbitant amount of money has been pumped into the cannabis industry. Our own company as well went public at the beginning of the year. And and in Canada, right? Because in Canada, pot is legal. So therefore, yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. Our friendly neighbors to the north. So it's the way of just avoiding the patchwork of U.S. laws. Yeah, exactly. And there are other ways to do it in the United States, but it's it's more complex. So you write in the book that despite the seeming popularity of the cannabis industry in the United States, there's never been a worse time to get started. And all of the companies, yours included, I think, lose money. Why is that? Why is it so hard to make money? People ask all the time. They say, should we get involved in cannabis? And the answer I always say is five years ago was the best time. And we actually just did our quarterlies a couple of days ago on uh-huh. bottom line profits. So that oh, counts for oh, something. Oh, 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 that's very exciting. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly expensive industry, number one, 
talent retention is super difficult. Payroll is a high expense across the cannabis industry. If we're talking about big CPG geared cannabis companies like yeah. ours and like Canopy Grow. What do you mean by CPG geared? That it's a consumer package okay, good, it. essentially. Okay, got it. Yeah, so it's that. And then just raw materials are incredibly expensive, though they've been compressed significantly year over year, the cost of the actual cannabis flower that's being turned into other goods. Is so. it is it volatile? It's not. It's actually consistently gone down. The because more and more people are growing as they see it becoming more exactly. legal, right? Exactly. Okay. And what about part of the problem with making money are these quite contrary regulations. You talk about one, Section 280E. Explain what that is. 280E is the bane of every cannabis entrepreneur's existence. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Strong language indeed. It's the section of the U.S. tax code that excludes any businesses that function in an illegal fashion from claiming any expenses on their tax reports, any any normal business expenses. So when we talk about the incredible cost of running a cannabis business in the United States. None of it's tax deductible. Exactly. So it's a realized tax rate like of 80% for some people. So it's, it's incredible. Wow. And then on top of that, you've got this complexity of state law, right? No overarching federal law. And the state law is really complicated and patchwork. Absolutely. And I think that also contributes to the high cost of operating in the industry. If you were to work at McDonald's, all of your supplies, all of the goods that you use in your restaurant are coming from one or two or three central warehouses. So that's all been brought into one place. And in the cannabis industry, it's not the it's not the case. If I run an operation in Colorado and I also have one in California, I'm creating those products in a vacuum separate from one another. And you can't ship, say, raw material grown in California and use it in your product in Colorado, right? No, everything no. has to stay within the state. Wow. Yeah. So. Wow. It's, it's a big logistical nightmare. <laughs> I, I can imagine. So what, what do you think the picture looks like for federal legalization? You seem mixed on it, I'd say. Yeah, I think it's farther away than a lot of people would like to believe. That said, our current political climate is extremely unpredictable. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> May you live in interesting times, right? Isn't that the old Chinese right, proverb? Right. Yeah. So... I wouldn't say it's out of the realm of possibility that it happens in the next two years, but it may. But, you know, I think we're on the right path. And I think eventually we hit this tipping point where enough states have legalized it that it's just a no-brainer to happen at the federal level. And I think largely due, in fact, just to the banking issues that we spoke about, I think that's probably the thing that will tip the scales. In order to allow banks to take money from cannabis entrepreneurs, right? So. so you don't have this almost black market system of banking running in parallel to the legal-ish exactly. cannabis industry, right? Exactly. Is, is part of the push for legalization, will it will the, the move toward criminal justice also help, do you think? I think so. I think people are really frustrated by the amount of resources that are spent on jailing people for petty drug offenses, especially when we've seen there are better ways to rehabilitate people than throwing them in jail. Like if people are being arrested for drug charges because they have a drug problem, going to jail is not the solution it's to that. Not going to do much, right? So how prior to legalization, assuming it ever happens, how as a consumer do you navigate all these different brands? I walked into a MedMen when I was in Venice recently, and it's just, you. It, it's really hard to know what you're buying, what something is, whether there's any consistency between products. Is that part of the issue too? And how as a consumer do you navigate that? There's a couple pieces to it. Number one, 
companies like ours, and we're certainly not the only one to do this, but are called multi-state operators. So we have products in multiple states in the United States. For us, it's 12. So you see some consistency among those products. And then you obviously have state-mandated testing that, you know, there's a label on the back of every product that at its most basic level tells you, here's how much THC is in it. Here's how much CBD is in it. It's cleared all of its pesticide testing. So you can get a general sense based on that of what it's going to do to you. But it would be, there would be more consistency if we had legalization, right? Absolutely, because you would probably walk into a Walgreens and be able to buy it and it would all be AB InBev brand. You make pretty big claims for legalization, both in terms of jobs. You think it might save us from the next recession and not because we'll be too stoned to notice that there's a recession <laughs> going on. And also, and also tax revenue, right? Those are those, am I right in thinking those are your two, the, two of the big arguments you have for yeah. legalization? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the job creation... We've seen it be the case in Colorado. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. And whether you want to say that's from cannabis or something else, that's I will leave up to people to decide. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go for correlation again. <laughs> <laughs> and then tax revenue, it's the same thing. It's We crossed the billion dollar threshold in tax revenue in Colorado, I think a year and a half ago, two years ago. I mean, so the money is coming in. And on a federal level, it would be at an even greater scale. But if, if you legalize federally, doesn't doesn't having it available all over the country then start to, no pun intended, cannibalize from other, from other areas? So do you really get the tax benefit, you think? Maybe to a certain extent, but I think I would have to pull the numbers up. But in Colorado, I think it's something like only 20% of people that come into dispensaries are out-of-state visitors. Like it's, really? It's mostly people who live in Colorado. There's a ton of tourists in some cities, yeah. but, you know, if you look on... Most small towns outside of Denver and Boulder, people are going to dispensaries that live in Colorado. So back to this idea that these companies don't make money. I think the Securities and Exchange Commission even issued a warning about a year ago, warning investors about fraud in, in the pot industry because you know, so many of the companies are traded on the over-the-counter market. They're or they're or they're based in or they're traded on a Canadian exchange, and there's there's just a lot people people don't know. What would you look out for? What's, what's a warning sign to you as someone who's now a veteran of this industry? What makes you say this this company is, is, is not one of us? It's tough to say. And I think it's like with making an investment in any novel industry, the onus is on both sides for A, the retail investor to scrutinize what they're investing in in the first place. And then uh, I think to a pretty significant extent, most people are not successful in listing, even if it is OTC. Most people are not uh, successful in doing so if it's an illegitimate business. Now, that's not to say there's not plenty of hot air in the pot stock market at the moment. But by and large, there's about 10 companies that you consistently see in business media that are the real deal. Nascent stage companies. So there's a lot of risk, like with Canopy Brands, which has a multi-billion dollar backing from its parent constellation, right? right. But yeah. still went through a shakeup this year with its CEO being ousted. And it's this we talked about harder to make money than they expected. I think so. And I think I can't speak for anybody from Constellation or Canopy, but I think my read is that they probably didn't make their money back as quickly as they wanted to. And it's a long-term play. And that has long been, you forget, I forget because I've worked in this industry for so long that all of that stuff isn't immediately apparent to people from the outside. But for me, when I got into it five and a half years ago, it's thinking, oh, this is a long-term play. 15 years from now, this is going to be a fantastic business to be a part of. Wow. That's that's actually interesting that you were thinking that far in, in advance. I'm probably giving myself more credit than I deserve <laughs> as a fresh from college kid. But, you know, pretty quickly on, you can realize that like, okay, it's great now, but it's going to be even better in the future. 
And so if you use your crystal mirror and you think about five, 10 years, do you think there's going to be a constant flood of new companies offering, I don't know, gold, whatever, whatever's, or do you think the industry is going to consolidate into a couple of big companies? I think we're headed toward large scale consolidation. I think you'll always have your sort of boutique bespoke cannabis products and brands, but I think those will make up a tiny, tiny portion of what's sold on the market. I think we'll see it become a lot like alcohol, where it's three or four big companies that own everything. It's interesting. I read a history of the automobile industry this summer, and I hadn't known that there were thousands of little auto companies in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And of course, we ended up with three, right? So maybe that will be the history here too. So So talk a little bit about the culture inside the industry. One of the things that I thought was fascinating, you had this this observation about the culture that's quite ironic, that marijuana does have these really deep anti-establishment and anti capitalist roots. And yet now people in the industry are rooting for government regulation and capitalism. So how does that sort of contradiction in terms play out? It's funny. I think we're in a in a growth stage right now where people are sort of reckoning with this notion that they got into the industry to like fight back against the man 10 years ago. And now they're very much the man themselves. Right. So I think we're seeing a lot of that play out in I think a lot of these IPOs speak to that, that people are ready to be taken seriously as business leaders in the space. So I think from the top down, that influences a lot of the culture where people have had to sort of pull themselves up and like get everything done at the highest possible degree because the stakes are just higher now than they were previously. So it's certainly, you know, I wouldn't say it's as bad as being on like a trading floor, but it's certainly high stress, high pressure because there's just so much at stake right now. That's a huge cultural shift within within the industry that would be fascinating to live through. So what was the industry's reaction? It's just one of many critiques, but my journalist named Alex Berenson published a book, I think earlier this year called Tell Your Children, basically arguing that marijuana is linked, the THC is linked to psychosis, schizophrenia, other really, really terrible things. And his his major point was that this rush to legalization is very premature. And you hear that from other groups as well. What's what's the industry reaction to that? I mean, to his book in particular, it's not just the industry who has pushed back against it. I think there was a, an open letter from 100 different clinicians and psychologists who said that he had cherry picked the data in his book and was drawing conclusions that just aren't rooted in science. And that's certainly my belief as well. As far as schizophrenia and cannabis, that's an argument that's been made over and over again. And the science for either side of the argument is just not there. There certainly can be a relationship between the two, but it's like a chicken and egg argument is that that people had psychosis first. And as many people with mental health issues do, were self-medicating with cannabis or were they using cannabis and it triggered the psychosis? I tend to think that it's probably that the psychosis was underlying first, but those cases are also exceedingly rare, more rare than I think his book would lead you to believe. Yeah, it's that correlation causation issue again, right? What do you in the industry do to to push back? Because it's not just his book. There's plenty of this criticism everywhere. No, absolutely not. I mean, and it's, it's funny, we've been talking about this a lot lately because of even just issues with companies like Juul, where vaping is becoming like a larger and larger issue among children. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, right? But they have certainly found themselves on the wrong side of the regulatory apparatus. Right. Right. Yeah. I would not I would not want to be sitting over there at the moment. A big piece of it is as with everything else in the industry, that we're fervent believers in regulation 
and that we're happy to comply with the law because it's both in our best interest and in the best interest of the consumer. Products are safer. They're difficult for children to get. And at the end of the day, like that benefits all of us. I'm hesitant to even say it, but no marketer is going out and thinking like, oh, I'm going to think of a way to market cannabis to kids because at the end of the day, they're not our consumers and they can't come into a dispensary. So. Do you think some of the pushback is coming from the alcohol industry or the tobacco industry in that there is some threat to them if pot becomes a legal, a legal substitute, right? Isn't there some, some line you had in your book about getting rid of beer bellies? <laughs> yeah, I mean, which maybe they might be replaced by munchy bellies. I don't know. That's <laughs> such a trite thing. I'll get, I'll get yelled at for having even said that. You know, I think, I think largely the alcohol industry is in favor of it. And as you've seen with Canopy Growth Corporation, Constellation made a $4 billion investment in them. So I think the tides are turning to a certain extent. And I think people are choosing different intoxicants aside from alcohol now. And I think alcohol companies are wise and know that if that's the way that history is going to play out, then they're going to be involved in it, not fight back against it. If indeed the legalization trend does continue, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. I think you might be a little bit optimistic on that front or perhaps naive about about the competitive forces at work. Absolutely. But whatever, maintain some happy naivete if you can. (laughs) A last question for you. Do you think this industry is going to look like any other industry in 10 or 15 years if you put back on your your future hat and say, what what is it going to be like? Is this just an industry like alcohol? I think it'll always have a certain uh, cultural cachet to it that makes it seem like the outsider industry. But, you know, 15 years from now, I think it'll be federally legal. I think we'll have seen huge consolidation. So it's just a few companies, maybe even alcohol companies that have acquired and absorbed them. Who knows? But I really do think there's this huge push, and especially at a company like ours, to really move toward the CPG model, focusing on the highest value portions of the... Consumer packaged goods, for those who have forgotten the acronym. (laughs) (laughs) There's this increased focus on the highest value portion of the supply chain. And so I think while there's always going to be this cool factor to cannabis and to working in cannabis, I don't think it'll be dissimilar to, to anything else that you walk in and buy off the shelf in the store. And maybe it'll take longer than 15 years to get there, but we're certainly headed there right now. It's going to be fascinating to see if your predictions pan out. So before I read Jackson's book and talked to him, I think I would have been anti-legalization. Why take the risk? Isn't the safer route to just say no? But he makes some compelling arguments, whether it be the inevitable existence of the black market or the hypocrisy of allowing ads for, say, alcohol to run freely on billboards across America. His most powerful argument, I thought, was the comparison between pot and prescription opioids, a topic we've covered here on Making a Killing. He writes, For the skeptics, I beg you to look at these two drugs side by side and tell me which one has the highest likelihood of causing harm. Even so, I'm going to bet that Jackson might be just a tad bit optimistic about the future of this industry. I'd think that there are going to be some big scandals and some billion-dollar losses. But then again, isn't that just like any other industry? I'm Bethany McLean, host of Making a Killing. We're taking a short break. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and I'll talk to Kyle Pope, the executive editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, about how journalism is changing. Looking forward to it. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Rosie Stouffer. My executive producers are Allison McLean, 
no relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 